Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 8, Daniel prays, O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we've sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we've sinned against him. And he has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole heaven such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your Fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. This chapter may very well be the greatest chapter in the entire book of Daniel. It begins with Daniel's deep dive into the prophecies that were outlined by Jeremiah that spoke of judgment of the people of God and the restoration of the people of God to their land in verses 1 and 2. So the chapter continues with Daniel's prayer of intercession from verse 3 to verse 19, which will lead to the prophecy of the 70 weeks in verses 20 through 27. 
Philip Newell in his commentary on Daniel wrote, quote, this chapter contains the true basis for a right understanding of the book of Revelation and of all other unfulfilled prophecy, we will see that it is also the key to Daniel's own understandings of his previous visions, unquote. So Bible teachers and students will often rush to the end of this chapter and they'll neglect the rich lessons that Daniel teaches about intercessory prayer. Because one of the things that you may or may not have noticed as we have walked through this passage, there doesn't seem to be any indication whatsoever that the children of Israel in captivity have recognized their sin, have recognized their shortcoming, have recognized their disobedience, have recognized their wickedness and their rebellion against God. And so Daniel will serve to pray for them. Just like some of you, you have family members, you have husbands, wives, sons and daughters who after repeated pleadings have refused God's grace and mercy, you have warned them and they don't seem to change. And so God may be calling you to the role of an intercessor that you begin to pray for them and plead for their soul before the true and living God and so the meaning and revelation of the visions given by the angel is going to also include a sweet evaluation if you just peek ahead in the text at verse 23 where it says at the beginning of your supplications Daniel even as you began to pray at the beginning of your supplications the command went out and I've come to tell you for your greatly beloved you are loved. You are cherished in heaven. Now I want you to think about this because the endearment is rich. Both Daniel and the apostle John share this endearment. John was called beloved, the beloved apostle. Daniel is called the beloved prophet. Both had visions of the future. Both had lives that were marked by purity and prayer. Both were subjected to tribulation and persecution. But both were given glimpses into the Messiah's coming. For Daniel, it was the coming of the Messiah. And for John, it was the coming of our Messiah. And so in Daniel's prayer, we see a, a review of Israel's sin and suffering in verse 3 through 14, and then a request by Daniel for God's people to experience the forgiveness of sin and to experience restoration to the land in verses 15 through 19. Because remember, they're in captivity. They're in a place of captivity. And in order to fulfill 
God's plans and purposes, they would have to return to the land. But you should pause for just a moment before we look in depth at this passage. What is Daniel's motivation? What's motivating his prayer? There seems to be several things. First and foremost, Daniel loves the Lord, but he also loves God's people. He loves the Lord, he loves God's people, he loves God's word. And so he's motivated, the prayer is prompted, remember at the beginning of the chapter, by his study of prophecy in verses 1 and 2 of this chapter. But Daniel genuinely wants God to be honored and glorified in verses 17 through 19. Carlo Coretto was right when he wrote, quote, It is love which gives things their value. It makes sense of the difficulty of spending hours and hours on one's knees praying while so many men need looking after in the world, unquote. Things obtain their value because you care about them. Daniel cares about his people. Rebellion and sin and disobedience had taken an awful toll. We all make choices. And those choices have consequences. And sometimes the consequences are severe. But sometimes we're given an opportunity to make a new choice, a different choice, a healthy choice, a kind choice, a righteous choice. A God-honoring choice. We can abandon our disobedience and rebellion. We can begin to trust God's grace and God's mercy and God's kindness and God's forgiveness and God's love. We can cooperate with God in his plan for our future. A future where we walk with the Lord in humility and submission and cooperation with his Holy Spirit. A future where we can love the Lord and then love each other. A future where we can participate as agents of God's good instead of wickedness and evil. In Daniel's prayer, we see the elements of determination, resolution, concentration, resolve in verse 3. He will fast. He will humble himself. He worships the Lord. There is confession and petition and supplication in verses 4 through 7. John Bunyan famously said, you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you've prayed. And so we see the prophet's prayerful confession beginning in verse 8 he says O Lord to us belongs shame of face to our kings our princes our fathers because we have sinned against you Daniel's prayer continues and as he continues he considers God's punishment the Lord had sent numerous prophets over hundreds of years 
issuing warning after warning in verse 6. How long would God's patience postpone punishment? The word translated sin, we have sinned against you, is a word in the Hebrew language which means treachery, unfaithfulness, a breach of trust. In our culture and society, when you love someone and you care about someone and you've entered into a covenant of a relationship and they break that covenant and they break that relationship, we use the term cheating. That's what this idea of sin here seems to include. It's the same word that was used in the book of Joshua to describe Achan's transition or transgression in the book of Joshua where the children of Israel are coming and they're supposed to enter into the land and God has made promises and he's reminded them and Joshua warned the people, this is what you're supposed to do. Remember, in, <laughs> in the instructions in occupying this new place, the Lord gave very specific instructions. And Achan decided that he was going to disobey and it caused grave, grave problems for the children of Israel. There are those who teach that repetition is bad or not helpful. But if you look at verse 7 and then at verse 8, O oh Lord, to us belongs shame of face, you might be thinking, well, what's going on? Why is he repeating himself in his prayer? There's a kind of rote repetition that the Bible condemns. Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 verse 7, speaking to the Jewish leaders said, do not use vain repetition in the hopes that God will hear you because you say it over and over again. There is a kind of vain repetition that isn't helpful. The Bible encourages persistent prayer, but discourages vain repetition. So why does Daniel repeat the prayer? I'm going to suggest to you he wants to make a point and emphasize a point. The repetition isn't meant to insult God, but rather to communicate Daniel's real belief that the circumstances over God's people, because of their sin, because of their rebellion, because of their disobedience, how it has brought shame to the true and the living God of Israel, has made his prayer all the more urgent. Daniel includes kings, princes, fathers. When he says kings and princes and fathers, he is basically making the statement, no one is exempt. No one is exempt from the guilt. No one is blameless. No one is guiltless. No one is spotless. All are liable before God. He is saying what is repeated by Paul in the New Testament, there's none righteous. No, not one all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. So Daniel's prayer will dwell on the character of God 
and then the commandments of God, and then the covenant with God, and then the compassion of God. He's going to emphasize all of those things because that's going to be the only thing that's going to deal with the problem of sin, with the horror, with the darkness, with the rebellion. So Daniel's prayer is going to turn from thoughts of punishment in verse 8 to thoughts of pity in verse 9. Look what it says. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. That word rebellion is a word that you would use to describe rebellion against a kind king, not a dictator. Not someone who has taken advantage of you. This is the kindness of a person who loves you, who's provided for you, who has encouraged you and sustained you, has done everything for you, and then you spit in his face. The Lord is the source of compassion and kindness, Daniel prays. It's only the Lord who can deliver us from the transgression, from the sin, only God can ultimately help. There are things that we can help one another with. But there's one thing that we cannot help each other with. And that's the solution to the problem of sin. There's only one person in the whole world that can make the rebellion and the disobedience and the sin go away. This is the very essence of the gospel, isn't it? It's Jesus. It's Jesus who can make our sin go away. So the Lord is infinite in his mercy and forgiveness. And so Daniel is thanking the Lord for these qualities of character. The God of Daniel is just and merciful. The reluctant prophet Jonah, who had been sent to the Ninevites centuries earlier in Jonah chapter 4 verse 2 said, I knew, I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful. I knew that you were slow to anger and of great kindness. For the person who pleads and says, why is the God of the Old Testament so different from the God of the New Testament? You couldn't be more wrong. The unchanging, never failing, everlasting Lord is kind and gracious and merciful and forgiving. And so in verse 10, look what Daniel prays. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. We haven't obeyed him to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Daniel appeals to the character of God in verse 9, and then God's commandments in verses 9 and 10, all the way to verse 14. So what does Daniel pray? Daniel prays, in the presence of God, the demands of the law of Moses. Now, it should also 
be a special note for the person who doesn't believe the Bible, who doesn't believe what the Bible says, who suggests that it's all been sort of made up after the fact. Daniel believes that there was a God who delivered the children of Israel from Egypt. He believed that there was a historical Moses. He believed in 500 BC, the, all of the things that are revealed from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so these were given in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. The law was given to the people of Israel. Many of you are familiar with the Ten Commandments. The first five deal with man's duty to God. The final five reveal man's duty to fellow man. And so what he is basically praying is he's saying, look, you told us what to do. And we didn't do it. In verse 11, yes, all Israel has transgressed your law. Didn't anyone keep the law? No. Did everyone break the law? Yes. Over and over again, it says if you're guilty in, in the transgression of one, you're guilty in the transgression of law, of all. Yes, all Israel transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse, now this is interesting to me, in the original language, the word as it's translated in the New King James is also singular. It's a, it's a curse, it's a singular curse, but it's intensive. And the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. The law transgressed, brought curse. Daniel uses another word to translate the word sinned in verse 11 that's different from verse 9 and verse 10. This word sinned means to transgress the boundary. It means to come up to the line where God said, I don't want you to cross this line. You can go this far and no further. You can't go beyond the line. And so, again, sin becomes a type and a picture of a boundary that once crossed creates horrible consequences. And then we see the list of transgressions, disobedience to the voice of the Lord our God, failure to walk in his law, Denying his servants, the prophets. Now, I want you to understand what is happening in the text. Daniel is maintaining that the people had every responsibility to hear the voice of the Lord. That they had every responsibility to walk in his law. And that when the prophets spoke, they were speaking for God. They were speaking with his voice that they were giving accurate information and instruction. And the word curse in verse 11, literally in the Hebrew language means to bind with a curse. In our culture, there's a legal concept called a breach of contract. 
In a contractual agreement, a person describes what he or she will do. Another person describes what he or she will do. It becomes the terms of the contract. When the contract is given, both parties have an expectation to fulfill the terms of the contract. When a person fails to live up to his or her agreement in the contract, then one party can call on legal powers to enforce the terms of the contract. In law, that's called a breach of contract. And so here, this binding with a curse seems to indicate some sort of breach of contract where now the legal powers are called upon to enforce the terms of the contract. So let me help you with this. In our culture and society, we tend to think of a curse as a supernatural consequence that's brought on by anger or animosity. And there may be an element of truth to that, but that's not the biblical meaning of the term curse. Here, the idea is that the curse is the exact opposite of a blessing. Here, the meaning is the exact opposite of a blessing. The Lord says, I want to be your God. I want to walk with you. I want to be your companion. I want to have friendship and fellowship with you and a relationship with you. I want to bless you. I want to encourage you. I want to provide for you. I want to be your God. So what exactly does the curse do? Now again, the curse brings about injury, the lack of blessing. God cursed the serpent and the ground after the sin of Adam and Eve. God cursed the ground and made it difficult for human beings to get what they need. You'll remember Jeremiah in despair cursed the man who brought news of his birth in Jeremiah chapter 20 verses 14 and 15. Those of you who are familiar with the book of Job in, in the Old Testament remember that Job cursed the day that he was born. So just how serious is God's covenant with God's people? There's a threat of curse on anyone who violates the terms of the agreement. That means the suspension of blessing and then the allowance of consequences. Paul taught that Jesus Christ became a curse for us so that we might be released from the curse of the law. Again, this is the very essence of the gospel. The consequences that we so deserve have been taken by Jesus. Hannah Hernard describes an intercessor this way, quote, an intercessor means one who is in such vital contact with God and with his fellow men that he is like a live wire closing the gap between the saving power of God and sinful men who have been cut off from that power. 
Daniel is an intercessor. He is interceding on the part of the people who have been cut off from the power of God. He is pleading with the living God of heaven to create a mechanism where the people who are suffering the consequences of rebellion and disobedience might once again enter into the favor of God. And this is exactly what Christianity is. This is exactly what the Bible says and, and what the New Testament claims. That Jesus, that Jesus is able to do exactly that. He closes the gap that stands between the sinner and his creator or her creator. And so we see the prophet's sincere supplications. Look at verses 12 through 14. And he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us. By bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole heaven, such has never been done as what's been done to Jerusalem. How has God confirmed his words? Long after Moses was dead, God sent prophets to warn the people of Israel over and over again. Warning, please turn from your sin. Warning, there's judgment that awaits you. Isaiah preached with unmatched passion and eloquence. Amos spelled out the judgment with cold, hard logic. Hosea, with a broken heart, wept copious tears. Here's the idea. What is it that you need? I need someone who will convince my mind. What is it that you need? I need someone who will convince my heart. What is it that you need? I want someone who will identify with me in my suffering. And God sends messenger after messenger and prophet after prophet and claim after claim. Please, please, please turn from your sin. Please, please embrace the love and the forgiveness and the hope that's found in the Lord. Hosea had a broken heart. Habakkuk wrestled with the problem. Jeremiah weeps as well. Ezekiel resorts to signs to shock them into understanding. He becomes a sort of a living presentation of, of, to the people of Israel. But the people remained deaf. They remained unchanged. They, they refused to forsake their sin. They refused to embrace the Lord. Other people in other countries have experienced terrible war. Destruction of property and slavery. When Daniel says, For under the whole heaven such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. Some people balk at that and they go, Hey, other people have suffered great tragedy and great difficulty. Other cultures uh, have been overwhelmed and overridden by outside foreigners who come in and invade and kill and enslave the people. Why is Daniel making this statement? It seems like a bit of an exaggeration, but it is no exaggeration at all. Because there's never been a city. There's never been a culture. There's never been a civilization 
who had access to the heart of God, to the mind of God, to the word of God, to the message of God. You see, all of these other cultures and societies, there was difficulty, there was murder, there was slavery, there was destruction. But there was only one place and one people set aside by God, chosen by God, who experienced the revelation of God, who, it, who experienced the divine and specific instruction of God, and then rebelled and disobeyed against his word. We warn our loved ones. We pray for our loved ones. We warn them and we pray for them. And we say, some of us didn't grow up in a Christian home or a godly home or a God-honoring home. Some of us grew up in circumstances where there was no religious tradition whatsoever. There was no access to God. There was no access to a Bible. There was no access to the instructions of God. But for those of you who are Christians, for those of you who have tried to raise your children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, as you've talked to them and prayed with them and pled with them and said, this isn't true of you. You have access to the things of God, to the grace of God, to the instruction of God. In verse 13, it says, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Listen to what he's praying. Even though you told us what to do, even though we didn't do what you told us to do, even though you spelled out clearly the consequences of what would happen if we didn't do what you said we should do. Here's what Daniel's pleading. Yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God. You mean in spite of the revelation, in spite of the instruction, in spite of the consequences, there's still no repentance. There's still a refusal to turn. And so Daniel is doing this on behalf of the people. There's no indication that they've done this. And you can wring your hands and you can cry real tears. You can bemoan the fact that your husband, your wife, your son, your daughter, the people that you love and you care about have refused to turn from their sin and turn to the Savior. Or you can pray for them. You can intercede for them. You can remind God about his promises and love, his willingness to work on their heart. Where is it written in the law of Moses? He says, as it is written in the law of Moses, where is it specifically that it's written exactly what Daniel is suggesting? It's in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 36. Listen to this. In Deuteronomy 28, 36, this is what Moses said. He will exile you 
and the king you will choose. This is exactly what happened. He will exile you to a nation to whom neither you nor your ancestors gave a second thought. When Moses said those things, Babylon was nothing. There was a group of people there, but it wasn't this massive civilization. It's it Moses' way of saying, you never thought about these people. You never thought about their language. You never thought about their customs. You never thought about their gods. You didn't give them a second thought. And while in exile, you shall worship God's of wood and stone, verse 37, you will become an object of horror, a proverb and a byword among the nations for the Lord will thrust you away. In Deuteronomy chapters 27 and 28, this is the chapters in Deuteronomy where Moses has already delivered one sermon and now he's delivered a second sermon and this is the third sermon in Deuteronomy. He delivers this third ser sermon. He says he commands that an altar should be built at Mount Ebal to write the law of God on it in, in Deuteronomy chapter 27 verses 1 through 8. In Deuteronomy, six tribes were to stand on Mount Gerizim and pronounce a blessing over Israel for obeying the law. The other six tribes were supposed to stand on Mount Ebal and pronounce a curse for disobeying the law. So in this valley and on between these two mountains, the six tribes have gathered on one side, six tribes gather on another. They communicate the law and then they talk about the blessings for those who will embrace it and the curse for those who disobey disobey it, the curse for disobeying, including manufacturing idols, despising your parents, moving boundary markers, leading the blind astray, failure to exercise mercy to foreigners, orphans, and widows, curse for those who commit incest, bestiality, those who commit murder or pay others to commit murder. Failure to keep the law is going to result in the curse. In chapter 28, Moses outlines the failures. Okay, this is what's going to happen. The land is going to be destroyed. You're going to experience disease, plague, drought, dust, storms, defeat in war, infertility, constant fear, frustration, enslavement by your children. After the destruction of the land would come dispersion from the land and exile. Daniel says, exactly what you said would happen, happened. And this is a problem, even for Christians. The problem is, we read our Bible, we read it, we read what it says, we're given instruction and guidance and we somehow think that we can ignore the Lord, that we can exercise rebellion and disobedience and it won't be as bad as all that. And then it is bad. In verse 14, therefore the Lord has kept the disaster in mind. When Daniel is saying that, He's talking about Deuteronomy 27 and 28. You may not understand what you're reading, but let me help you understand. God in his grace and his mercy and his patience, his kindness, his goodness, his grace, his mercy and patience, he said, there's still time. You can turn from your sin. This doesn't have to go bad. 
it doesn't have to go bad for you. You could change. You could change your mind. You can change your mind. Therefore, the Lord has kept this disaster in mind. The idea being he keeps the fact that he has made this promise. He has made this promise that continued, consistent, persistent rebellion is going to result in consequences. Therefore, the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. After years, decades, hundreds of years of patience, God's patience finally gave out. And he says, rebellion and disobedience, that's what you want? Then that's what you're going to get. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. In other words, should it shock you or surprise you that Lord's going to do exactly what he said he would do? Daniel admits, he admits that God keeps his word. If the children of Israel had listened and obeyed God's word, blessing, security, healthy children, large flocks and herds. If they disobey the Lord, they're going to be surrounded by enemies. They're going to be enslaved. They're going to be dispersed among the nations. They're going to become an object of horror and mockery. The only safe place for the children of Israel, according to the testimony of the Lord, is in their land obeying the Lord. That's the safe place. The only safe place for the people of God is to be exactly where you belong. In Jesus. In Jesus. You are in Christ, obeying, loving, serving your Lord. Our relationship with God begins and ends with the Jewish Messiah. And look at the prophet's plea. Look what it says in verse 15. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and yourself, you made yourself a name as it is to this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. In verse 16, he says, O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, lest your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those who are around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications and for the Lord's sake, your face, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary where it's desolate. By the way, that expression, cause your face to shine, is a Hebrew idiomatic expression which means favor. Look with favor. If you want to know where the idea comes from, watch a grandparent looking at their grandchild. Their face lights up. Their face lights up. Their face lights up because they're looking with favor on their offspring. 
In other words, they're looking with favor, with a view towards loving and caring for them. He says, look with favor. Lord, look with favor on your sanctuary, which is desolate. In verse 18, it says, oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. This isn't anything we've done to merit favor, kindness, goodness. And then in verse 19, oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, listen and act. In the Hebrew, it's brief. It's brief. Let me put it this way. The prayer becomes brief and intense. The implication being he's overcome with emotion. It's as if, again, he's praying. And as he's praying, the prayers become shorter, brief, and intense. Lord, hear, verse 19. Lord, forgive, listen, and act. Don't delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people who are called by your name. So there's three pleadings. Number one, Daniel remembers how the mighty God acted on behalf of Israel in the past. Then Daniel prays and provides a testimonial to God's character. That's in verses 16 and 18. Then Daniel prays with a real burden for the honor and glory of, of God above all else in verses 17 and 18. So these pleadings are, remember what you did for us in the past. Remember who you are. Remember your honor and glory above everything. Daniel remembers the exodus in verse 15, the exile in verses 16 and 17. And so he's basically, as he's praying, praying to God saying, exodus is the proof that God is unmatched in his power. When he mentions the exile, he says, God is unmatched in keeping his word and keeping his promises. The same God who humbled the superpower Egypt, the same God who forced Egypt to let Israel go, will force Persia to let Israel go again and return to the place where they belong. And that's the idea. The bottom line is, he has a plan. He has a purpose. God's plan and God's purpose isn't for you to remain in sin. It isn't for you to remain in bondage. It isn't for you to remain in rebellion and disobedience. He has a plan for you. And the plan is going to best be served in purity, in prayer, because God's not finished with you. He says the sanctuary is empty. The temple's destroyed. But there's something about that place and that temple. 
Why is Daniel praying that prayer? Because the temple is the place where God dwells. This is the place where people meet with God. This is the place of worship. This is the place of sacrifice. This is the place where a satisfying solution to the problem of sin can be met in the temple. But the people provoked God. From the time of Solomon to the time of Zedekiah, they provoked him. They provoked him to constant, persistent anger because of idolatry and apostasy. The people of God preferred the pagan gods. They became addicted to moral depravity and political insanity. And the way that God dealt with them was he took them to Babylon. He allowed the temple to be destroyed. He allowed the nation to be carried away because they were going to be purified and they were going to return. Daniel begs God to hear his cry in verse 18. He begs God to see the people's desolations in empty city in verse 18. He begs God. His supplications aren't on the basis of anything good that they have done or that he has done. It isn't on the basis of goodness and faithfulness to God's law. He basically says, look, in order to fulfill your plan, and your purpose, we're going to have to rely on your mercy in verse 18. And so he prays and he says, listen and act. Listen and forgive. Don't delay. Don't delay for your own sake. Don't delay for the people's sake. Don't delay for honor's sake. And so his intercessory prayer is one of shameless insistence. Just like it's talked about in Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, where Jesus talks about a person who knocks on his neighbor's door in the dead of night. In Luke 11, he goes, hey, look, somebody's traveling. They've come to town. And hey, I don't have anything to give them. Please, please open your door. Open your door. Look, I'm, I've already gone to bed. I'm already asleep. My children are with me. Please open the door. Please open the door. And finally he says, he doesn't care about you. He's just going to make you, he's going to open the door to shut you up. It's in that context that Jesus says, men ought always to pray. And not faint. Don't give up. Daniel's ministry of intercession, adoration, confession, supplication, and petition is all of a sudden interrupted. An angel. There's news from heaven. Dorothy Soul said, in every prayer, an angel waits for us. Since every prayer changes the one who prays. Oswald Chambers said, quote, Jesus Christ carries on intercession for us in heaven. The Holy Spirit carries on intercession on the earth. We saints carry on intercession for one another. Daniel's prayer is interrupted by an angel 
who gives a revelation about what's about to happen. A new promise is going to be made. A new fulfillment is going to be outlined. God is going to allow the plan of God to continue to unfold. You know what's fun? If throughout the course of this message you've said, I want to do that, I want to pray, I want to pray like Daniel, then don't be surprised. Don't be surprised that your prayers are interrupted by an angel. And an angel comes with a message and says, God's been listening to you. He's been hearing the words in your heart and your mouth about the people you care about and love. God has a plan. It isn't that they remain apart from God, but that their sin be forgiven and they be reconciled to God. The prayer is going to lead to a message and a prophecy, but that's for later. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that the angel is going to reveal to Daniel the exciting unfolding of the future plan that God has for God's holy city and God's holy people. Lord, we can't help but think that just like you had a plan for that city and those people, that you have a plan for us. A plan that includes you being glorified. A plan that takes into consideration mercy and grace and forgiveness. A plan that includes that you don't want people to live their lives in rebellion and disobedience. That you do want people to live their lives knowing you and loving you. And so, Lord, I pray. I pray that the Jewish Messiah, who you planned to send in Daniel's day, who has come, would reveal to our hearts what it means to know you and to love you, to experience grace and mercy and forgiveness and reconciliation with the true and the living God. And so, Lord, again, we pray that you would provoke us to care about the people that you've placed in our life, to intercede on their behalf, and to pray that your perfect plans will be accomplished. In Jesus' name, amen.